God, where it's it's so humid. It's so muggy out. I'm going to my grandma's house later. She lives on one of the many lakes out where you are. I'm not going to dox you on your podcast. Nice. <laughs> but God, I am. I'm going to get. I'm going to get eaten alive by those mosquitoes. Oh, those mosquitoes. Yeah. My, my, my dad on uh, on Shabbos was like, we're, we, we are we have to take Bobby to a movie. We have to take our grandmother to a movie. And I was like, I don't know. Like, 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 like you can't just say that apropos of nothing. Like, does she want to see Zola? Like, I don't like, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. I'm your hostess with the most, you can call me Rocky. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. You might know them as a writer for the forthcoming indie game Validate. They're also one of my favorite people. Sam, how's it going? Hey, hi, my name is Sam. Uh, I use they and he pronouns. My hands are purple because I dyed my hair. And I am very excited to share some of my hottest takes. Yes. Today we are uh, doing the unthinkable and talking about Fight Club. Uh, we're really breaking. <laughs> we're breaking the first two rules. Uh, those are the rules everyone remembers. You know, don't talk about Fight Club. Third rule: no Jews. So we're also breaking <laughs> we're, that we're one. Breaking all, we'll talk about that we're one. We're breaking well. a couple of the Fight Club rules today, but um, you know, we're we're pushing we're pushing the envelope. We're breaking boundaries. We really are. Um, I consider myself a Fight Club scholar in that I am getting a master's degree and I won't shut up about Fight Club. There so <laughs> I feel like that. <laughs> yeah, that counts. Yeah. You, you know, you're a scholar and you're, you're um, in Fight Club. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a scholar and I'm correct. Exactly. Which, unlike many scholars, uh, I have the correct opinions about this. That's right. That's right. Um, where should we start? Uh, well, I guess I do have a little bit of uh, history. That's, you know, how I like to do things here. I do my research before we uh, before we get to talking. But um, I, I think I'm going to try to, like, integrate a lot of it into what we say and just do, like, a little bit at the, on the top. But, like, just to kick us off, tell us a little bit about your, your relationship with Fight Club. So my relationship with Fight Club began with my relationship with panic at the disco mm -hmm. um and this is this is going to be so convoluted but it turns out that a young ryan ross who wrote all of the good panic at the disco songs and the other good panic at the disco songs were written by pete Wentz. <laughs> um that's my other that's a bonus hot take yeah that could take be that for could, the for the evening yeah that could be another episode Honestly, uh, the summer of like is the next episode I demand to guest on because right. I fully believe it. I believe in all of it. Um, anyway, the so at like in 2005, I guess uh, Ryan Ross got really into the extended works of Chuck Palahniuk. Surprisingly, there actually aren't any real references to Fight Club on their first album, A Fever You Can't Sweat Out. 
But there are like very heavy handed references to some of his other novels, including um, Diary, which I don't really like. It's just okay, But that's where you get uh, just for the record. The weather today is slightly sarcastic with a good chance of a indifference Uh, that comes from straight up from the novel Diary. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other biggest reference is in the whole song uh, Time to Dance. That song is straight up just like a song about the novel Invisible Monsters, Mm -hmm. which I really like. I'm rereading it right now, actually. Um, It's so, oh, so transmisogynistic. I'm not going to say it isn't (laughs) because it is. Just like transmisogynistic in a way that is at least unique. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a a pretty compelling story about like, beauty about like what does it mean to be a considered a good person and like when you are the kind of person who people refuse to look at what can you get away with um and so i yeah it's a really great really good book i recommend it um but also caveat so transmisogynistic Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna say it isn't right uh but so Listen, getting into Panic at the Disco, I found that out. So I was like, I gotta find out more about this Chuck Palahniuk guy. So uh, my dad took me to the youth bookstore and I was like, I want to read Chuck Palahniuk books. And he was like, okay, I know who that guy is. (laughs) We're going to sit down and watch the movie Fight Club together. And then I will give you permission to read the novel Fight Club. So I watched Fight Club for the first time when I was 14 Mm. with my dad. Uh, And I mean, I had a good time. I, I really love the movie Fight Club. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is, I think that's, I think that was a very, before I knew I was like trans, I guess. I think that that kind of like, that like moment was something that was like very gender euphoric to me Mm -hmm. before I was able to like, put words to that because it's like this is a boy movie for boys and my dad is excited that he gets to share it with me and i'm excited that i get to share it with him Mm -hmm. so you know that's me and fight club i also know a lot about the history of the publication of fight club the novel Mm -hmm. uh and just like uh just like fun facts uh invisible monsters actually chuck polinick wrote it first he wrote it before he wrote fight club fight club was not the first book he wrote but it was his first published novel because his other two that were kind of like getting chopped around uh which were invisible monsters and his novel survivor which is about like an evangelical cult survivor Mm. uh it's who becomes like a con man like and like mega preacher it's really interesting uh but he also like crashes himself into a plane and obviously you can't publish that right after 9-11 or what the fuck ever. So it's like, so they didn't publish Survivor and then they were like, Invisible Monsters might be a little bit too much. We don't know if people are going to like this kind of storytelling because it's a very like non-linear story. It's a very, con- he has very conversational prose. Um, and that's something I really like about his prose. God, I'm like just giving a TED talk uh, mm-hmm. about like creative writing practice now. But like basically Fight Club was the book that they were like, okay, 
we, the publishers, will give you a shot on this one because of the three you've presented to us, this one seems like the one that we're most likely to be able to sell. Right. Uh, And so Fight Club was published in 1996. Mm -hmm. And if you read it, you can tell. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's a really good uh, starting point there. I have a few more uh, pieces of information about j- j- just, you know, how it came to be. Um, so, so Chuck Palahniuk's first published work was a was a short story in 1990. And uh, he was like 28 when, when it got published. And I was like, you know, he wasn't really pursuing writing full time at that point, but he took these writing workshops with uh, the writer Tom Spanbauer, who was, uh, you know, this influential writer who frequently touched on like race and sexuality and both Polonek and Spanbauer are gay. Um, And uh, the the first manuscript that he sent out, period, uh, was this 700 page monstrosity called Insomnia that he described as an attempt to be Stephen King. Uh, and you know, that, and what would eventually be invisible monsters, these first couple manuscripts just get summarily rejected by every publisher. And so he starts working on an adaptation of, uh, one of his short stories, Fight Club, uh, and the, the short story version that was published in 95 becomes, I think, chapter six of the book. Yeah. I don't have a copy of the novel in front of me. Unfortunately, if I did, I would definitely be like flipping through to be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Chuck Palahniuk also as a writer, so he's not like an MFA guy. um, And I think that does really come across in his writing. That's actually part of why as in my like creative writing pedagogy, I actually try to teach Chuck Palahniuk and writers like Chuck Palahniuk who weren't necessarily like formally educated, if only because like that's what most writers are and an MFA doesn't make you a good writer. In fact, a lot of times it makes you a worse writer. Right. In my <laughs> opinion. I feel well, that. I'm not getting one. Yeah, I feel that. I uh I'm very much the same way. So yeah, I actually I do have a copy of his uh book about writing that where he talks about some of this stuff. Um but another thing that's so he does also write a lot of short stories. Um, one of his most famous, uh, he he's published actually pretty extensively in Playboy, which I think is actually pretty cool. Um, Playboy will like actually genuinely publish short stories and like that are more transgressive uh, that other literary mags really won't touch. Uh, they will they like frequently publish like the only like this is my side of the story of like. Notable, notable women who were sexually assaulted by famous men, uh, which is just like, like I don't know, I don't stand Playboy or anything, <laughs> but I do think that's pretty cool. Um, one of his more notable short stories is called Guts, mm. uh, and it's about masturbation mishaps, mm. and it is very difficult to read. Uh, right. It's hard to get through. It really, really fucking is. Uh, but he also featured it in another book of his, which is a book that is about a writer's workshop where every other chapter is about like the fucked up stuff that's happening in the workshop. They've been kidnapped. It's, it's a whole thing. They're in a mansion. So they've been kidnapped. So every other chapter is like about that. But the other ones are the short stories that the people brought to workshop. So I don't know. I just think like he's a good writer. I think that he is willing to experiment with things that aren't necessarily considered like 
polite subjects to include in literature. One of my favorite books by him is called Rant. Uh, It is told in the form of an oral biography, and it is a sci-fi novel about time travel and rabies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that. Um, Now, just to uh, sort of you know, a, a, circle back to fight club yeah, and to elucidate like where I stand with it. I have not actually, I don't think I've read any of, <laughs> of Chuck Palahniuk's books. Um, I have, I have seen the film fight club. This is actually my second time seeing it. And, uh, you know, this is probably the first, the, the first watch on which I was like really watching it and trying to develop an opinion on it. So I'm, I'm a little fresh when it comes to my thoughts on it, but we'll get into what those are in a bit. Um, a couple of uh, Polynoke's inspirations for writing Fight Club. First of all, uh, he describes having once gotten into a fight while camping. And <laughs> when he returned to work, he was all bruised and swollen and his coworkers would avoid asking him about it. About it, And that was like his initial inspiration. And like a, a key part of that anecdote is that one of the reasons that he got into the fight had to do with it was it was a gay bashing it was okay. it was not it was like a fight but it was you know yeah it had like homophobic implications absolutely um which i think is also an important like it's just like gay bashing is just like a part of our culture that nobody fucking talks about mm-hmm. <laughs> but like definitely existed at the time and probably still exists absolutely absolutely and uh, he also said, uh, this is a quote, bookstores were full of books like The Joy Luck Club and The Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood and How to Make an American Quilt. These were all novels that presented a social model for women to be together to share their lives, but there was no novel that presented a new social model for men to share their lives. Which, like, yeah. I I mean, Chuck Palahniuk's relationship with women is... I think it's something that we'll definitely get into in the film. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that he isn't a misogynist because right. uh, he is. Yeah. Uh, all men are. It's, it's just, it's part of living in a society, but also like specifically Chuck Palahniuk has a problem with women. Yeah. Um, but I think that that like part of the, like, this is what made me want to write Fight Club. Like the fact that he saw that women are getting some space mm-hmm. in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. What about the men? Like that's very much, I think an important part of, what fight club is yeah and there was this um this like the, this like men's movement in the early and mid 90s where where there there was a this bill moyer report that's also one of the things that polonic talks about where he was talking about um men like a men like going into the woods and doing these these weird rituals and like reclaiming their masculinity there was another report that he did about like street gangs and the rules and discipline that they would uh employ and you know this this was a topic that people were talking. Yeah, it's um, also like largely fabricated. Mm. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Just like a sidebar. A lot of the like reporting about street gangs uh, was largely just like racist fabrication. But I'm sure, yeah. The fact it was a part of the cult, the like culture at the time of like these are highly organized groups of young men who are in this highly organized fashion doing some kind of violence. Exactly. And uh, the, he hasn't like mentioned this as a as an inspiration, but he is also a member of a group called the Cacophony Society, 
that was sort of an outgrowth of the Dada movement. And it's like, it's a, it's a, like a culture jamming, like, you know, experiences outside of like the, the, the mainstream, you know, I mean, they're performance artists. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, those are the things that sort of come together to make Fight Club. He also describes the book as a retelling of The Great Gatsby. Which I think is a really interesting look at it. I was just looking into that earlier today. And I do think that if I were to, like, write a second academic paper about Fight Club, that is an angle Mm. I would take. Yeah, the, the way he describes it is uh, a surviving apostle tells the story of his hero. There are two men and a woman and one man, the hero, is shot to death. Uh, yeah, there's definitely something there, probably. But so the novel comes out and uh, it's uh, it's a big critical success. It has like a limited commercial run, but it wins a bunch of awards and it makes Polonek like this, you know, buzzing uh, name in fiction. And uh, as is often the case uh, at this point in history, before the book was published, a proof was sent out to uh, film studios to see if it might have adaptation potential. And uh, Fox Searchlight's book scout picked it up and tossed it around to a bunch of producers, uh, like six of them. And the ones who ultimately took a chance on it were these two men named uh, Ross Bell and Josh Donan. If you recognize the name Josh Donan, he uh, dated Cher for two years, and he was also Robert Wagner's stepson and Natalie Wood's close friend. Uh, so <laughs> just some, some interesting facts about him there. Don't get me fucking started on Robert Wagner. I was literally <laughs> in a Discord server like fucking yesterday talking about how he fucking killed natalie wood he Mm. did he fucking did i another episode i will eventually guest on i am a natalie wood truther sure and like josh onan was in the hbo documentary that they did about her like in 2020 and he was he was talking about how like how like she was having second thoughts that he like encouraged her to go on the boat and now he feels terrible about it yeah i god what a woman i know that if she had lived, she would have started saying really, really heinous things in the news, and I would probably love her a lot less, but that's exactly. not the fucking point. Exactly. So uh, Donan and Bell recorded some lines of dialogue. They sent it to the head of Fox 2000, Laura Viskin, and she buys the rights from Polonek for $10,000. She says, I didn't know how to make a movie out of it, but I thought someone might. And that someone was Jim Ools. If I were to ever teach about screenplay adaptation, I would do Fight I You, yeah, you gotta yeah. do Fight Club Absol- because absolutely. Jim Ool's his work was fucking incredible. It's true. Um, you haven't read the novel. I have read it many times. First of all, it's a first-person narrative, um, which to me at least would be very difficult to adapt mm-hmm. in general. So it's a first-person narrative told in the present tense which just like grammatically that's going to like pose issues. It's a really, really internal novel Mm. and it's told really, really non-linearly. There's also, there are also like, there's a lot of different subplots that, and like themes that are present in the movie, but like had to be distilled into a lot of choice moments there. I it, it's a really fantastic adaptation. I think that like the one failure of the adaptation is that it's something I'll get into a little bit later. I think just because like the book 
and the film are both capital A about the same things. Mm -hmm. But I think that the nature of the film being a visual medium led some of those things to be miscategorized in level of importance to the narrative. Yeah. Definitely. And we'll definitely get into that. Um, so Ziskin initially wanted to hire Buck Henry to write the script because she she read it and she was like, she read the book and she was like, this is kind of like The Graduate. I'm going to get the guy who did The Graduate. Uh, but Jim Ools, who had zero writing credits at this point in his career, he successfully lobbied Donan and Bell, the producers, for the role. And as he put it, I was chosen due to a script of mine that was viewed as a sample, plus some meetings in which I talked about how I would approach it. Somehow I kept inserting myself into all the meetings of about it until i was basically considered the writer <laughs> god what a guy what a guy i think that's i think that's really incredible and he did such a good job mm -hmm. like i don't know i don't care about the oscars obviously you can't retroactively give somebody an oscar right. from the 1999 <laughs> oscars but if I were in the academy <laughs> i would have given him best oh, totally. adaptation i mean it's like that like it is commendable, mm -hmm. the work he did. Yeah. And so um, so a number of directors were were lobbied. Uh, David O. Russell passes. Peter Jackson has another project. Uh, Brian Singer gets sent the book and never reads it. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Peter Jackson's other project was Lord of the Rings. <laughs> he could have done Fight Club, though. I am glad he did. Yeah, a little bit. I think I think he could have brought something to it. But uh, David Fincher approaches Ziskin himself, and he actually had tried to buy the rights to the book like before before Fox got him, and he didn't want to work with Fox because his first film was Alien Three, which and you know he had this this vendetta against Fox because they they fucked that one up. But uh, he had this meeting with the head of Fox Two Thousand and the head of the entire studio, and just like. You, you know, they, they smooth things over one way or another. And in 1997, it was officially announced that Fincher would be directing. What a guy. What a guy. Yeah. He, you know, this was right off the back of um, Seven. Yeah. And so yeah. Seven. <laughs> yeah. Also starring Brad Pitt. Also starring which, Brad Pitt. Yeah. This is like a, a sidebar. The like twink to hunk transformation that brad pitt went through between those two films cannot have been good for him oh yeah like that can't be good for the human body it can't be it can't be and there there's a lot of stories about like all the training that uh that, that brad and and ed norton did for 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 this film um and you know i'm sure it was it was horrible like i know norton ended up like deliberately losing a lot of weight and not getting enough sleep mm. at some point which is like i don't know at what at what point like did anyone tell him <laughs> to do that or did he just decide <laughs> to do that because listen i am very much against like like fuck stanley kubrick there is no reason to like force the people who are working for you into uncomfortable positions to get like what you consider better acting out of them. Mm -hmm. And also men sometimes will just do shit. Jared Leto, Who's who is also film, yeah. in this movie is a notable, is a notable example of, 
be a man who will just like do fucked up shit and say it's for acting it's true. but it's true like no one told him to do that it's true and that whole like extreme method thing was very was very much like a thing in the late 90s it was what everyone was starting to do i think i think leto i don't know which film it was but like leto was kind of known for that like right before fight club and then they got him onto fight club um which like he, he in the late 90s, Jared Leto had really only been in, like, bit. He was, like, a teen heartthrob from One Tree Hill or whatever. Like, it's just insane to me. I hate Jared Leto, okay. who is a rapist. Yeah. Like, I hate him. Yeah. Not much more to say. Like, I mean, like, yeah. I hate him a lot. Yeah, he's, like, fine in this. And I think he kind of got to where he was by being good in the background of a lot of movies <laughs> and just sort of over yeah, time. Absolutely. <laughs> because he's good in the background of this movie. Yeah, he is. He was well cast for the film. Exactly. Which again, we will get into what happens to Jared Leto's character later because it is actually very important to the theme of the film. Yeah. So on the topic of casting, uh Ross Bell initially wanted Russell Crowe to play Tyler Durden uh but this other producer who had come on later but was like a senior executive he like he was like we need Brad Pitt and uh yeah basically at the time Russell Crowe was like big in Australia but not so well known in America and the studio felt that like the film would be more successful if there was like a big star attached so Brad Pitt signed on for 17 and a half million dollars amazing yeah that is, and the fact that they paid Chuck Palahniuk ten thousand dollars for the rights. <laughs> well, hold on, because there's another thing. So the studio also wanted a big name for the narrator. Uh, they were thinking about Matt Damon. They were thinking about Sean Penn, and uh, David Fincher really wanted Ed Norton for the role. He was really impressed by what he did in The People versus Larry Flint in '96, and so Norton was being courted for all these other roles because of that role. But uh, and he like owed Paramount a movie, which ended up being the Italian Job. But he ultimately signed on to Fight Club for two and a half million. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah yep. this is why you need to talk to your co-workers about how much you're getting paid it's true. It's just, it's Brad, like you got 17 million dollars they had 17 million dollars <laughs> Yeah, so getting back to the script, uh, Ull's initial draft of the script didn't have the voiceover. Uh, you know, at this time in Hollywood, it was like voiceover is tacky. You know, there was this the, the famous disastrous voiceover in Blade Runner that they had to like go back and re-edit the movie to take it out. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it was like not to do that. But Fincher felt that a lot of the humor uh, in the book came from the narrator's voice. And so he worked with Ull's on another draft. And uh, there were like five drafts because after that, Brad Pitt felt that his character was too one dimensional. And so it was Ulls and Fincher and Brad Pitt and Ed Norton and Cameron Crowe and Andrew Kevin Walker, like all of them came together to make like the final draft of the film. And they did a great fucking job. That's the thing. Yeah. Like Fight Club is a very good movie. It is. Like aside from all of the like, things it has to say it's a good story and it's well made and it is like very obvious that the people who made it like very much gave a shit about making it right and um i i have uh j just a couple more things here then we'll actually get into it uh fincher's first choice for the marla role was janine garofalo 
And by her account, she was dropped because Ed Norton didn't think she was right for the part. After that, they uh, they looked at Courtney Love, Winona Ryder, and Reese Witherspoon. Uh, but Fincher ultimately chose on the bottom Carter. Reese Witherspoon would have been the worst fucking choice. <laughs> it would have been strange. That can you imagine? It would have been weird. I think Winona Ryder would have would have been an equally good choice. I think Winona Ryder could pull off that role mm-hmm. um, at that time in her career. Yeah. I think she could definitely do it now. Right. I still think I, but I think ultimately like the casting decisions they made were incredibly solid. Mm-hmm. I think Meatloaf is really good yeah. in this movie. Um, Meatloaf is so good in this film. Um, Helena Bonham Carter is amazing. Even like, I would say other than the actor who plays the doctor at the very beginning, mm. All of the like extras, side characters, the like bit parts, they're all really well acted. And that's just like, again, it's just like a good fucking movie. It's a good movie. It is. And one more note before we uh, get into it, because I feel like this is going to lead into some conversations. Uh, There's a lot of talk, if you look at like the making of this movie about Fincher and, and Norton and Pitt, but Fincher mostly considering the film a comedy. Uh, one producer said that, uh, quote, I remember him reading it in galley form and laughing the whole time. Uh, this quote directly from Fincher, we were making a satire. We were saying this is about, this is as serious about blowing up buildings as the graduate is about fucking your mom's friend. And, uh, when, when, when he first talked to Fincher about Fight Club, Ed Norton said, I said, you're going to do this as a comedy, right? And he was like, oh yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really good approach to take with it because like the thing, like, it is funny. Yeah. Like, Fight Club is a funny movie, and it's a funny book. It is. And Chuck Palahniuk is a funny author. Um, it's just that, like, it is, like, the name of the, like, you know, trope, I suppose, is, like, it's the refuge in audacity. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a thing that people enjoy. Like, and I think that, like, again, I, I feel like Fight Club is what would happen if Brett Easton Ellis knew he was writing a satire when he wrote American Psycho. Uh-huh. Um. <laughs> totally, totally. And I, but, but I think it's interesting the way that it's told as a comedy, because if you watch it going in like this is a comedy, it's 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 a really funny movie. But I think that um, I, I think Fincher was intentional. I actually have a quote about this somewhere that uh, that he was like, he he didn't want it to be like, uh here it is i think edward had this idea of let's make sure people realize that this is a comedy he and i talked about this ad nauseum there's humor that's obsequious that's saying wink wink don't worry it's all in good fun and my whole thing was to not wink what we want is for people to go are they espousing this and so i think i think fincher was very deliberate about like not winking to the audience and like you know just letting the letting the film kind of speak for itself and i think that could have been one of the reasons that uh th- that it sort of developed this reputation for being something other than what it is yeah i i will say i can't imagine a version of it that were cuz it's not like the film isn't self aware mm. and it's not like but I think that, like, the degree of, like, leaning on the fourth wall that it does have is a pretty good amount. Mm. I think that being too wink-wink about it, I worry that it would just turn into Deadpool. Yeah, absolutely, it would. <laughs> right. So it's, it's, it's one of those things also, and, like, it's a problem with satire as a genre in general, 
at a certain point, people are only going, aren't going to pick up on commentary if that's not what they're intending to pick up on. Because I do think, and again, I think this is something that was a loss in adaptation. Fight Club is not subtle mm. about what it's about. Mm. It very much so. <laughs> um, and I think that, like, part of the, like, cultural understanding of what Fight Club is, is, like, it's just, like, 100% not based on what the film actually is. That's true. Um, I We can get into differences from the novel that emphasize the theme, but, like, it's a pretty straightforward adaptation. Yeah. I mean, you know, the film is not subtle, definitely. It, it, it you know, like... Like, if you're looking for it, and it's very clear that, you know, Fincher and and Ulls and Norton and Pitt, like, like, the people who are actually making it were very clear on what the themes were. And, uh, and you know, there's a lot of talk about how this, this film, people say that it was ruined by the marketing around it. Um, they, uh, you know, because it was originally going to be released in the summer, and then when Columbine happened, they were like, let's move this down a little bit because because uh a lot of people in the media were talking about like movies that uh that that were creating this this culture of violence and and they were worried about fight club being a part of that um but it had this premiere at venice and uh and uh again i think this is uh brad pitt saying that 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 he and that like when helena bonham carter says i haven't been fucked like that since grade school the guy who ran the festival got up and left and that like the like like the whole audience was silent the whole time and it was just ed norton and brad pitt laughing hysterically (laughs) okay that line is so fucking funny and the original line in the book is i want to have your abortion yeah which is also very funny not quite as funny mm. tbh to me um that's just like a just a fun fight club trivia yeah. that the studio was like no you cannot say i want to have your abortion in this movie right and so david fincher was like i will change it exactly once yeah exactly and He's- then he was like you didn't say i had to make it better he, he said i will change it on the condition that you 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 cannot make me change it again and then they and then once that line happened they actually tried to get him to change it back to the abortion line and he was like hey a deal's a deal (laughs) it's really i just like helena bottom carter also apparently didn't quite know that grade school meant elementary school Uh which is why her delivery is so fucking perfect yeah yeah, um, like I was saying, the uh, there was a lot of talk like about marketing where the studio was was like, we have these big stars in it and we want to push this as like a, you know, a big studio movie. And and Fincher was talking about uh, making it, portraying it as more of an art film. And he worked with this this outside studio to design those soap bars. And the studio was like, those suck. We're not using them. <laughs> There, there was all kinds of stuff. They made, they, he made those PSAs that the, that the studio didn't want to use, and the studio was like advertising it during wrestling matches. And and uh, I and you know I'm pretty sure this is what Fincher said. He was like, you know, this this movie is pretty homoerotic. I don't. I, I feel like people are going to get the wrong idea from it if we <laughs> if we advertise it as like a fighting movie. Right. But but they really did advertise it as a fighting movie, and that's probably why the film did not do very well commercially uh in theaters just just because you know people didn't know what to make of it but uh yeah let's get into it hell yeah
I mean, now we know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm just going to say it. This is a movie about being closeted. Mm. It's a book about being closeted. Um, it is very much a commentary on gay, being a closeted gay man in a world that knows about AIDS. Mm. Um, and I think that, like, I argue that, like, those are the primary themes of the text. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 like, the messages about consumerism and materialism are symptoms of that overall dissatisfaction of the self. Mm -hmm. So, like, while Fight Club does make a lot of commentary on society, it's a very personal film, and it's a very personal novel. And, like, one of the things that would have made it difficult to, um, you know, adapt would have been the fact that it's so internal. My DoorDash driver's calling me. Oh, Hang on. Come back. I'm back and I have my Chipotle. All right. But I'm not going to eat on air. On air, yeah. In, in media res. So let's, uh, let's, where can we, where can we let's dive in? Let's get back into it. Yeah, where can we dive in here? I mean, we can start at the start. Yeah, let's start with the uh, the the Jimmy Neutron brain blast opening sequence. <laughs> Thank you to the Dust Brothers for giving us this 1999 ass soundtrack. The Dust Brothers fucking crushed it, and they like uh, Fincher talked to Radiohead about doing the soundtrack, but I just I feel like you know like like Radiohead just was just like tired. They didn't want to do it, but I feel like the Dust Brothers that like yeah, break me. Like- thing like 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 they really it's really original you know and and they were trying to do like in many ways they were trying to make a 90s version of the graduate and i feel like employing employing breakbeat and employing the this this like sample driven like this this like very modern very different kind of music for the soundtrack right was a a very strong choice and like it's corny now but like the use of where is my mind at the very end of the movie this came out in 1999. That was cool then. Yeah, absolutely. And who doesn't like the Pixies? Exactly. So we begin with uh, where do we begin? What's the? We actually begin with um, with Tyler having the the gun in the narrator's mouth, and uh, and he's like, "That's me." <laughs> hey, that's me. I'm not going to tell you what my name is. I bet you're wondering how I ended up with this man's cock, I mean gun, in my mouth, in this empty office building. Gun's cock. Uh. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, like, it's a shot that is unintentionally homoerotic in most films that use that shot, mm. but it is not unintentional, it's so unintentional. in this film. It's so intentional. I, I I really like, I mean, right away, just the, the like costume design that we have with, with, with Brad and Ed. Yeah. Is, like, like it, it, there's a lot of really strong choices with the way Brad, like, like, like those, the, those like blue blocker sunglasses he's always wearing and the like big feathery coats. Yeah. Watching it this time, and this is a, a whole thing to get into, but I, w- I was struck by the sort of, 
it, it's in terms of costume, but also in terms of attitude and just where they are in the story, the parallels that are being drawn between uh, Tyler and Marla. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, if there is, if you want to assign, like, who is the manic trixie or manic pixie dream of indeterminate gender? Mm-hmm. Like, who is it? Is it Marla or is it Tyler? And the answer is both. Yeah. And, but I mean, like the narratives, the, the narrative really begins with the narrator, like seeing Marla at these, at these, uh, you know, these meetings that he's going to. And right. So like he's, he has insomnia. A doctor tells him you can't die from insomnia, which is not true. You can die from insomnia. Right. Uh, so like, I, I will say that that scene with the doctor is actually really interesting to me. I I was thinking about it. This is my like probably like 12th or 13th time watching Fight Club. I stopped counting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a movie that like frequently when I find out a friend of mine hasn't seen Fight Club before, I'm like, bet we're watching Fight Club right fucking now. Uh-huh. Sometimes when I drop acid, it's nice to have on in the background, which I know is an insane thing to say. <laughs> but I've seen it so many times that it genuinely is like comforting for me to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like this scene with where he's talking to a doctor and basically being like, I need you to take me seriously is I think a really good example and a subtle example of like how masculinity functions because in any interaction where there are two men, essentially you have this dichotomy where like two men can't really be in a room together because to be a man is to be at the top of a hierarchy. And so you see that because the doctor is in a position of power over the narrator, you see the narrator being put into this really vulnerable position which is like socially akin to that of a woman. I'm not saying he's a woman in this social interaction and is being treated like a woman, but I'm saying that like, that is where his positionality falls in terms of just like raw power. I'm like, if you were being very like Foucault-y about it and like taking a step back from the fact that like, okay, these are people interacting, like what are we seeing here? Yeah. And I, and I think you can, that, that, that's, you know, one of the, one of the moments where you can draw a parallel to AIDS and to, you know, be, you know, people not being taken seriously about this, uh, about this, you know, th- this disease, like being ignored by doctors is, you, you know, it's, it's an experience that recalls that, especially in the context of everything else in the movie. And, um, right. Um, there's actually a scene in the novel um, there's a scene in the novel where the narrator is reflecting on his time in college. So the film is set in the late 90s. Uh, so keep that in, and this is a man in his mid-30s-ish. Like, so keep that in mind of the rough time period when he would have been in college, where it he had a birthmark on the bottom of his foot that looked like what doctors were calling at the time a new cancer. Mm. and he went to have something else checked out. He had a wart on his dick that he had to get removed. That's what he was doing. And in the process, they were like, oh, you got to get this wart removed, huh, slut? And then they were like, 
And he was like, no, actually, I, I just like you need to get this removed. It's not from anything. I just like you need to get it removed. And then they look at his birthmark and they're like, holy shit, it's this new cancer. And everybody starts getting really excited at the idea that he might be like he might be one of the first people they've ever gotten to see who's dying from this thing they don't know about. Mm. And like they're talking about AIDS. They're talking about yeah. AIDS. Yeah. Um, and and it, it turns out it's just it's just a birthmark, but it's and he's when they find out it's just a birthmark, he stops being special. Yeah. And, and I and, think that that is a really interesting scene. Yeah, and it should be noted that like in I think 94, 95, uh Tom Spanbauer, who, as I said before, is Polonic's like mentor comes out as having AIDS. So like this is something that is that is very much on Polonik's mind as he's as he's writing the the novel. Um also just another diversion in the novel, Tyler and the narrator meet on a nude beach and not on uh. an airplane. <laughs> and the nude beach scene is actually not very good, but he does talk about whenever he does like the narrator is like, yeah, sometimes when I'm on a work trip, I will go to a nude beach, but whenever I'm there, I bury my foot in the sand. Mm. And I'm like, okay, queen. Mm. <laughs> I'm not gonna say slurs on your podcast, right, but you know the, the one I'm thinking of. Not on the pod. <laughs> but um I only say slurs on my podcast. Exactly, exactly. It's <laughs> when in Rome. But uh so so it's it, it's pretty and it, speaking of cancer, this is pretty much the next thing that happens is he's you know, he's he's talking to the doctor, he's like, uh he's like, You can't do anything for me. And he's like, You go to go to a, a testicular cancer support group and you'll see people who really have problems. And so this is where this this plot point early on that it has there's a lot of like I, I mean it's it's very dark and very like like funny, but but there's a lot of fun that's had with this early sequence of him like getting addicted to going to support groups for people who have like life-threatening illnesses there's a woman named chloe who is described as what would happen if you made meryl street skeleton get up and walk around and be nice to people all day and i'm just yeah. like that's so fucking funny it's and really it's really funny. dark but it's really funny it and is. like chloe gives a speech to her support group about how like she isn't, she has accepted, like, she's gonna die from her brain parasite. And, like, she's accepted it. She's not afraid of death anymore. Mm-hmm. The one thing she wants is to get fucked yeah. one more time. And nobody will touch her. And that, again, like, she doesn't have AIDS. But, like, this is about AIDS. AIDS support groups were a really big thing at yeah. the time. Absolutely. And still are. Absolutely. And uh, this is also where we're introduced to the meatloaf character, Bob. Yes, Bob and his tiggle babies. That's right. That's right. We love um, to see So it. meatloaf, he is actually, it's a really interesting example of how non-normative bodies can be accepted so long as you meet other conditions of masculinity. There's an ethnography that I read uh, in when I was writing an academic paper about Fight Club, um, and it's called Men in Place, uh, and it's about uh, trans men in the United States, and it focuses on like race, gender, sexuality, and geography. And one of the anecdotes was this guy, he's a white trans man, 
who was living in the rural South and he was mowing his lawn one day and he wasn't wearing a shirt because nobody who fucking mows their lawn wearing a shirt when it's hot in the rural South. And he hadn't gotten top surgery. And one of his neighbors came up to talk to him and was like, Oh, hey, man, if you if you need like help getting to the doctor for that, the, the like weird growth you got, like, let me know. But if you if you can't afford it or whatever, like, I get it. Like, uh-huh. like, and it would it, it never occurred to the neighbor that like this guy who was performing like all other like acceptable forms of masculinity for their like social class, race and geography. Like. The fact that he had pig old bitties didn't count against him right? in that way because he met those other criteria. And obviously race and sexuality play into it because this guy is straight also. Mm-hmm. But like, you know what I mean? It's, it's something that like Bob is still a guy, even though he's had his testicles removed due to testicular cancer. He was a bodybuilder. He did steroids. And, like, his life's a fucking mess because he has failed at being a man. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, physically marked upon him by not just the fact that he doesn't have balls anymore, uh, but by the fact that, like, he grew boobies because of the shit he had, the medicine he had to take to keep him alive. And he only refers to them as his pecs, but everybody else in the narrative calls them tits Mm -hmm. and i think that that is i think that that's just like it's interesting it's very interesting and the do you you think trans guys would be allowed at fight club do you think calvin garrow would be allowed into fight club (laughs) right now yes yes that's correct yeah, but but it's it's really interesting the role that Bob plays throughout the movie because you you know especially since this support group thing gets dropped like ten minutes in you kind of don't expect him to come back but he's like always there and he plays such a pivotal role he's he's obviously the martyr of the of Project Mayhem he he gets shot by a by a cop and. Um, and and you know his name is Robert Paulson is that, that that was a really funny scene to me that that you know it's just the way that he's like he he's just trying to be like a, a, a guy just died but everyone takes it to be this symbolic thing they can't accept it as reality right right it's very it's it Fight Club's very funny and so he the narrator finds that like when he is able to enter a space where he can emotionally connect with other people and where it's okay for him to display a lack of control over his own emotions, where he can be vulnerable, where he can cry his fucking eyes out. He says it himself, babies don't sleep this well. Like, mm. the, like it is very obvious from the beginning of the movie that this guy's problem is that he can't fucking open up and who notably in our society has such a hard time opening up that they turn to violence straight guys yeah and so fight club itself is just the intricate rituals oh barbara kruger was right absolutely absolutely and i think that was definitely 
I mean, the original short story is just is just like the Fight Club sequence. It's a sequence where he's like going over the rules and all that. And and you know, it's it's pretty clear that that was built around this idea of intricate rituals of you know of you know men making these rules for each other to uh, you know allow themselves to be in each other's company. But um, right, and also like truly the only difference between fight club and like a cruising spot is the fact that they're fighting and not fucking and that's also something that obviously chuck polinick was would be aware of and obviously like the parallels aren't unintentional Mm -hmm. like authorial intent is not it's not always that girl but I think that, like, sometimes people take death of the author a little bit too far mm-hmm. because Chuck Palahniuk is alive. He did write it and he is gay. Not right. only is he gay, he's a pig. And I think that that is like, like, I really genuinely respect him for being a fetish first writer. Absolutely. Absolutely. That it's really admirable to, and, and, and I love to see that there's so few, like, like, like there's such a, you know, there's, there's so much discourse about, uh, about, uh, about that kind of thing today. And I really admire the people, the remaining people who, uh, who really just, just, just explore, who, who really like put their kink out there and explore it. Like, like, like in like as gay people who do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, He's a white guy, so I'm not going to give him that much fucking credit, but it's right. like, it is to this day in 2021, it's, I mean, I, we don't need to get into Isabel Fall discourse, but it's just kind of like, it's still so hard as a queer person to have complicated stories to tell mm-hmm. that like, I do have a lot of respect for Chuck Palahniuk for telling them, even though he doesn't really write like explicitly queer novels or whatever, you're never going to find Fight Club shelved next to like, I'm trying to think of the name of a game next to Maurice. You're not going to see that happen, (laughs) but like as a scholar, I read both of those books and I'm like, yeah, they're talking about the same thing. Absolutely. And so uh, the introduction of Marla uh, is is sort of, as I said, the impetus for 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 things changing in uh, in uh, the narrator's life. They have this this exchange where they're talking about dividing up the uh, the, the support groups. And it feels like it feels like the first inkling of this thing we see so much of later on where, where, you know, it's this obsession with like making rules. This is where he interacts with men and he has to like make more rules on top of it for him to like allow himself to uh, attach to it. Right. He never gives his real name. He never actually says anything. And like, he does comment, like if you go to one of those places and you don't say a single thing, people assume the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. Um, and also a thing that he notes with Marla is that when people think you're going to die, they actually listen to you. Right. Um, and that's clearly something that he needs. He needs emotional support. He needs release. And he is in a social position where 
he doesn't have there aren't very many acceptable forms of that outside of like a romantic relationship and he clearly is not interested in having a romantic relationship with a woman at least not at this point in his life and so something to note about the narrator is that his job is fucked up yeah he has a very fucked up job he is a recall he's a recall coordinator which basically is like he looks at car accidents all day and then does math for the company he works for so they don't have to do a recall about the accidents he looked at. Exactly. Um, this is like, like it, it, seeing that kind of stuff fucks you up and having to be like, having to detach yourself from like the deaths of other human beings, like that's not good for people. And so it's it's a subtle thing, but like his job is traumatic. He gets into it later, but his childhood was also traumatic. Mm-hmm. Like he he's a person who has like I'm not gonna say he's been through a lot, but like like in the grand scheme of things, he hasn't. He's a, an upper middle class white guy, you know. He's cis. Mm-hmm. He Well, I'm not going to say he's not disabled, but you know what I mean? He has a lot of stuff going for him in a societal sense. And also like, and this is one of the like commentaries on society is like, that's never going to be enough for a person. Mm -hmm. Like people don't need status and people don't need money and people don't need an apartment full of Ikea furniture, people need meaningful relationships with other people. Yeah. And the narrator is in a position where he, even if he were straight, like, how the fuck is he going to date anybody? He's fucked up. Yeah. And it, you know, I think it's interesting. There are a lot of things to talk about off of that. I think it's interesting but like, like once the twist is out there, it's like, okay, so he blew up his own apartment in order to establish this imagined relationship with, uh, with, you know, with Tyler. But what's interesting to me, first of all, is just how upset he is when he starts to notice Marla at these meetings and this, this like hatred that, that he has for her instantly that, that, that she's there. He calls her a tourist and he, you know, obviously confronts her and he compares her. He's like, if I did have a tumor, I would name it Marla Singer. Yeah. Which like great line. Yeah. I don't know what to make of that. But the other thing that I was going to talk about is we were talking about, uh, you, you began to mention how he touches on his childhood. And I think it's really interesting. The couple of conversations that he and Tyler have about, uh, which men they would hypothetically fight if they could. And first it's famous people. Uh, well, first it's, uh, I, I think first it's people they know. And Tyler says his dad and the protagonist says his boss, and then the, the, it's famous people, and Tyler says Hemingway, and the protagonist says Shatner, and then historical figures, the protagonist says Gandhi, and Tyler says Lincoln. All people I would fight. Sure. I would fight William Shatner, and I'd win. Yeah. I would fight Gandhi, and I'd fucking win. Absolutely. I'd fuck a. I, I would not fuck a. <laughs> I would fight a. That was a Freudian yeah. flip. 
Yeah, but 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 in the context of this film, obviously fighting is fucking. So it, it, it you know the fact that Tyler says says his dad is so interesting, and then and then uh, and then obviously the the protagonist is like, I didn't really know my dad. Um, and also, they're sitting in a bathtub when they're talking about their dads. That's like true. Tyler <laughs> is in the tub smoking a cig. The narrator's on the toilet, like clipping his nails. They also like the narrator outright says we're like ozzy and harriet it's true it's like, true there are a lot of scenes early on before the big twist which like we can just fucking say it this movie came out in 1999 the book came out in 1996 you weren't even born when right. the book came out yeah so like no i mean <laughs> i mean everyone knows the twist that uh, that tyler and the narrator are the same person right um but like and like Truly, this was the last movie that could have this, that twist. Yeah, there was a whole thing where, uh, like, a couple, like, a week or two after the movie came out, Rosie O'Donnell did this diatribe about how much she hated it, and she gave away the twist to, like, you know, on, on national television. And, and, uh... That that the Brad Pitt has has cited that as like one of the reasons the movie failed. He was like, I mean, she gave away the twist. You know? God, Rosie. Although the thing about Fight Club is that like even if you kind of know the twist, it's kind of it's easy to forget. Yeah. As you're watching it, and then even so, even if you know the twist, it's a movie that's worth rewatching because Absolutely. of the twist. Because. Unlike M. Night Shyamalan, it is actually well done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's uh, what, what I was going to say. Let's see. We were talking about this, the smoking in the bathtub. And smoking is one of the traits from Marla that gets carried over into Tyler. And I, I, you know, I just think, you know, there's, there's all this, there's this whole thing where Marla and Tyler have this, are, you know, always having sex. And every time the narrator comes home, he hears Marla and Tyler fucking. Uh, and I think... It's worth, um, it, it's interesting because obviously to Marla, like textually, Tyler and the narrator are the same person, but I also think that to the narrator, Tyler and Marla are the same person. Yes. And I think that's part of why he gets so jealous mm-hmm. at it. And he, and he is like a very jealous person about Tyler. This is um, Jared Leto's character. So once Project Mayhem starts happening, the narrator starts noticing that, like, Tyler is, like, kind of doting on Jared Leto a little Mm. bit. He's this, like, young, blonde twunk who's in Project Mayhem living in their house. And, like, for some reason, he didn't have to shave his head. It's like like he bleached his hair. He had these fucking bleached eyebrows. Yeah, it's like he he bleached his hair it's for like, the first part, it, and then he was like, "I like this. I'm keeping it." <laughs> yeah, it's not really. A, it's really not a great look, honestly. It's, but it's weird. It's weird. Um, especially the eyebrows. But he, so he sees there's a scene where there the police commissioner goes to pee. They like attack him in a way that is like intentionally reminiscent of sexual assault Mm -hmm. uh and they hold him down and put a rubber band on his balls and they're like he has a whole speech about how we are the working class uh or whatever Mm -hmm. 
And he's like, don't fuck with us. And then they cut the rubber band off of his balls, I guess, to like make it hurt. Yeah. And also like when they go to cut it, he's like, oh my God, you're going to cut my balls off. Yeah. Uh, Which like, I read the sun also rises. I get that men feel very, cis men feel very strongly about their little testicles. Uh-huh. And if you don't have them anymore, it's the worst thing in the whole world. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who is a guy who doesn't have testicles, I really feel like it's not that big of a deal. Right. Um, I still get laid all the time. So, right. you hey. know. Hey. But, but hey. I never thought about this while I was watching the movie, but Bob is part of Project Mayhem. So, like, what would they do to him if he, if, if, if he like, you know, talked or whatever? I mean, that's the thing about Bob, though. Of course, Bob's not going to talk. That's they're all he has. Yeah, I think. And I think all of the shit about like, if anybody talks, it was only ever going to be the narrator. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, because because, you know, Tyler said because he set those things up where like it was the exact things that he was going to say. That scene was really funny. It, it is really funny. He told us you'd say <laughs> but but I like I you know it's interesting how Bob comes in. Uh, he's like the second recruit for Project Mayhem, and he's the one. And they 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 tell him he's too fat, he's too old, and he like starts to leave. Like 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 even up to the end, he's the only one who has like maintained some kind of humanity throughout this whole thing. And like like. Bob is a good guy. Like, that's the thing about Bob. And it's like, you you meet him at the beginning as, like, a man who has made a lot of mistakes, but who's, like, trying... He's still trying. And, like, I don't know. Bob's just a good fucking dude. Yeah, so let's see. What else is there? There's the, um, the, the starting of the Fight Club itself. That scene is also very good. Um, I will say, as a man, you should know what a fucking duvet cover is. It's not just a blanket. <laughs> it's a thing you put over the blanket because blankets are a pain in the ass to wash. So you right. have a cover on the blanket that gets all your sweat and dead skin and bullshit and like and come probably and right. like you wash that <laughs> yeah uh oh the scene where the the owner of lose uh walks in on the what walks in on the fight club and is like who are you guys <laughs> and then they you know have that fight that scene that scene is really Again, I think very pivotal in the this is a movie about AIDS thing. Right. Because the thing that gets Lou to back off, more so than the fact that Tyler Durden is clearly unhinged and is like, is when Tyler gets on top of him, coughs blood into his mouth and says, you don't know where I've been. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a there's a really structurally interesting thing where I was talking about the like, the the, the you know, in the Save the Cat like structure of films. There's you know the the fun and games thing that happens like at after the first act where like you get into this rhythm and you know you're 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 just having fun with the premise and that thing. There's that like right at the very beginning in this movie with the support group thing for 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 like the first ten minutes and then it's sort of there's sort of another fun and games that 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 one foreshadows of the fight clubs 
becoming bigger and and more intricate and it's sort of happening like while this personal drama is happening with marla and with uh you know tyler and all that and then like as it gets on it's like it, you're you're sort of blown away by how big the thing has become just you know it's in every city and you know because the story and... up until that point yeah up until that point it was so personal yeah. and to the narrator it was personal yeah. And I think that's also where that sense of betrayal came from. Oh, and I never finished saying what happened to Angel Face, but, like, that's Jared Leto's character. So mm-hmm. after they, like, assault the police commissioner and get the, get him off their back, they're, like, running away. And, like, Tyler, like, kisses Angel Face on the cheek and is like, congrats, us, you did a great job. And Edward Norton turns away as they're running off oh. and says, I'm Jack's, like, jealousy. He's talking about like right. he feels like he like and the next scene immediately after that is Edward Norton's character is the narrator breaking one of the rules of Fight Club and beating Angel Face senseless. Like right. he like one of the rules of Fight Club is that if somebody goes limp or says to stop, you got to stop. Like it's not beating people to death club. It's Fight Club. But Ed Norton, like, goes hard. Like, Jared Leto, like, you don't know if he's dead or not for a little bit. He's not dead. Uh, He survived, but his face is fucked up permanently. Like, absolutely destroyed. And, like, while it's happening, Edward Norton has this voiceover about how, like, he wants to, like, pour oil on, like, white sand beaches. He wants to like shoot a bullet into every panda that isn't going to fuck to save its own life. Like Mm. he wants to destroy something beautiful. And Mm. I think that that is at the core of Tyler Durden's philosophy. Cause like Tyler Durden isn't an anarchist. He isn't a nihilist. He's not, he's not those things. Those are like coherent ideologies. Tyler Durden wants to recreate the world with himself at the top and he doesn't give a shit tyler durden is a fascist yeah definitely (laughs) and a lot of people have talked about the 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 you know the fascist the 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 structure of fascism that develops with uh project mayhem yeah it it just that like it is it is a fascist organization and like it's not for nothing that like we see a lot of young men now going through similar patterns, but instead of like punching the shit out of each other, they're on message boards on 4chan, yeah. like verbally punching the shit out of each other. Yeah. And- like what is our brain? Like what is like a, an incel subreddit where they post pictures of themselves to get absolutely eviscerated, if not a fight club. Oh, totally. And I think that, but you were talking earlier about how uh, about how the fact that it's about being closeted is the point. And I think I think it's even true when it comes to the commentary on fascism that it develops. You know, you're talking about how early at the beginning of the film, there's the scene with the doctor and like, like the lack of control. And like, like when you put and, you know, you put two men in the same space and they start vying for for power. And I think that when you when you put the, the fascist hierarchy in the way of. Tyler recreating the world where he's on top 
it, you know, it, 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 it's an intricate ritual in and of itself. It absolutely is. And I think that, like, again, a lot of the societal commentary, it's not that it's not there and it's not that it's not an important part. It's just that I feel like it's all it all stems from the fact that, like, the, the narrative itself is about this internal conflict. And this like desire that the narrator, the narrator has many desires that he knows he can't tap into his desire for power, his desire to have control over not only his life, but everyone else's life. Like you see it come up a lot. The narrator's a fucking control freak. Um, and then also his desire for other men. All of those things are intertwined. And I think that, like, talking about only the materialist aspect and, like, the, the like, consumer's commentary, I think only talking about those and talking about, like, the, the like, quote-unquote homoerotic subtext, I think, does the narrative a really huge disservice. And I think Absolutely. it does the, the, the commentary on society a disservice. Like, Fight Club is a gay movie. It's about being gay. Yeah. And when people, and, and you know, I, people seem allergic to, uh, you know, analysis that like renders the Fight Club itself meaningful. Like the thing that the movie's named after is so often left out of when people say that it's about fascism or it's about consumerism or that, like, like, like the subtext of it, you're ignoring that it's really about the fight club <laughs> the fight club is about that and like all of the the power all of the influence that tyler durden is able to amass is because he is able to create that space where lack of control on the part of men is acceptable and like the way that feeds into it also being about AIDS is because like what is a terminal illness if not the ultimate lack of control over your mm -hmm. own body? When I when I wrote about Fight Club, it was in conversation with another another novel called um, The Married Man, which came out in two thousand, um, mm. and it is about a guy who ends up giving his partner HIV and his partner develops AIDS and dies. And like, they're not good people. Uh, it's very much about the like gay affluent academic class, which are not my favorite people in the world. Sure. Um, but, but like some of like, like it's a really, it has some like really harrowing descriptions of just like a man dying and all of the anger and rage that comes with just your body is the last thing you have and even it's not listening to you yeah speaking of uh tyler and control i uh i found myself thinking about this scene where the, the anecdote about him working as a projectionist in a movie theater and inserting a single frame of a penis into into uh, a family film and then of course at the very end of the movie like as the buildings are, are being demolished and the song starting to play we we see that frame of a of a penis show up again the big old cock the big old cock yeah it's it's uh you know, I, I I mean, the fact that Tyler doesn't exist sort of plays into what that anecdote really means. But I think it's, you know, he's sort of putting 
to, to the extent that the narrator is gay, you know, that, that can be seen as an allegory for Tyler sort of, sort of making him gay. Yeah. In a way, or, or rather because Tyler was always him, it's always been brewing, but he didn't, you know, it's one of those things where like you have these feelings I think, and I think I relate to this obviously more in a gender way than a sexuality way. I, I guess for me, my personal journey, I've known I was a big old bisexual slut since day one, baby. Uh-huh. But like when it comes to how I feel about like my own gender, and I, I mentioned this earlier, like there are a lot of things that I've only ever been able to articulate in retrospect mm-hmm. about it. So it's not that the feeling wasn't there, like the discomfort of being perceived in a particular way. It's just that I didn't have the words for it. And so it's only now that I do have those words that I can like say, oh, that's what that was. Yeah. The other thing that, uh, the, 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 the other, you know, sort of general thing that struck me was the, um, the the sort of parallels that the narrator draws between Tyler and his dad where uh where yeah, he, yeah where first of all he's talking about um Tyler and Marla are always fucking and then uh, and then apart from that he never sees both of them at the same time it's always one or the other and he says my parents pulled the same trick for years right even yeah late even later in that scene he says like i'm six years old again passing messages between my parents like yeah and then later he says i'm all alone my father dumped me tyler dumped me i am jack's broken heart which is probably the most significant uh parallel that's drawn oh absolutely and tyler in his speech where he's giving the narrator a chemical burn he says like if our fathers are our models for God, what does that say about God? You need to accept the possibility that God doesn't like you. He wow. hates you and he wishes you were never born. Wow. And so I think that like, I think like, and Tyler is also, ta- he's not really talking about God mm-hmm. and he's not really talking about the narrator's father. He's talking about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that like Tyler is, like so much of what Tyler does is he's an abusive boyfriend. Yeah. And I think also that like, and so many, like how many times have we seen like somebody who is like doing some violent terrorism and it turns out they have done a lot of domestic violence in the past. Also, Mm -hmm. I mean, fucking 40% of cops are like fascist love being abusers in all areas of their lives and so i think that like like this is most notable in a scene where the narrator's in the hospital and he's saying tyler would like tell me what to say sometimes and tyler's sitting off to the side like saying something and the narrator's repeating and he's like i fell down some stairs as he's getting sutures put into like the side of his face yeah wow that is that is really strong that like that imagery i think that's deliberate Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think to the extent that uh, Tyler, you know, is 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 made up, uh, he's he's uh, he's an he's a reflection of of how the narrator feels about being gay or about you know wanting to have those relationships with men or just his relationship to masculinity in general in a way. Right, like to the narrator, 
in order to be a man, you have to be abusive. And I think that that, like, that's what people are talking about when they talk about toxic masculinity. And like the, like the constant repression of your emotions, the like all of that, like that causes you to treat people around you badly. And like, I think that's really exemplified with his, the narrator's relationship with Marla before the twist. I think that like, uh, like he fucking hates her, mm-hmm. but to Marla, this is a guy who is again, just, an abusive boyfriend right you know he's just like emotionally manipulative he's a shitty guy to date and like because she does she doesn't know what's going on he doesn't know what's going on as far as he's concerned marla is someone who he does not want around and as far Mm -hmm. as marla's concerned she is some she it's okay for her to be around sometimes but not all the time and like this guy will like like, even when she, there's the, like, classic scene of her on the phone, there were so many Tumblr gift sets of this, where she's like, you fuck me, then you snub me, you love me, then you hate me. Is this an accurate depiction of our relationship, Tyler? And this is, like, Marla confirming that narr- the narrator and Tyler are the same person, and that's, like, the final nail in the coffin for the narrator, like, accepting that. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, of course, Tyler likes Marla or at least likes to fuck Marla because Tyler again represents masculinity it represents or, or you know the narrator's projection of masculinity uh in that way but then Tyler but then the the narrator I mean the narrator's name is Tyler but, but like the narrator can't you know I mean is it it's not it's not his like legal name I gen, I don't think his name is actually Tyler you don't think so? No, I don't. It's in the book it literally never comes up. But I believe Tyler Durden is just one of many names he's made up. The ending of the novel implies that he's not. Yeah, and I haven't read the sequels, but I've read like... Yeah, the sequels also imply that it's not. Yeah, yeah. I I, I at least think that in the film, I mean, the way that the plane tickets say Tyler Durden and all that, and the way that, that, you know, she calls him Tyler, I got the impression that, at least in the context of the film, it's meant to be saying that he's always been Tyler Durden and the, and the the character that he's projecting onto is who he's giving that name to. True. But this is also pre nine 11. So flying and like getting a plane ticket with not your actual name on it was probably significantly easier. Yeah, that's probably true. I also, there's, I also that scene early on in the airport where his like luggage is being taken before his, uh, he finds his blown up condo. Hmm. I just think it's really that like moment where the like guy at baggage handling is like nine times out of 10, it's an electric razor. No big deal. But the 10th time it's a dildo. And he's looking the narrator straight in the eyes. And he's like, of course it's company policy never to use a, to always use a definite article. The dildo never your dildo. And I'm just like, because like, that's the thing that even despite all of his repression, the narrator is still perceived as less than a man because people are being homophobic to him. Yeah. That that scene of, of, of him sort of being uh, investigated for that, or just, just having that kind of um, surveillance rather like, like, like that feels like a moment of he 
he, he is being monitored. And so he has to, and that's sort of, you know, when we talk about intricate rituals and, and, and how the fight club sort of comes to be, I think it's the fact that he, you know, he knows he can't let it, let it get out that he goes to these support groups. He knows that he, you know, he can't reveal that he has these, these, these dynamics with, with men. And so he has to, I mean, I guess Tyler has created a moment earlier, but he, but, but he has to create the, the, the fight club to, uh, to, to present that side of himself, the Tyler that he created. Right. And to have like a much like a cruising spot, everybody at fight club has the exact same amount to lose. And also, like, the same kind of cops would come to break up either one, would they not? It would be the vice squad. Yeah, that's true. One would assume. Yeah. It was weird to me how most of the cops in this movie are black and like no one in no one in the the fight club is. And that was definitely a thing in the 90s where like if you turn there are black people in the fight club, Mm. there there are black people in the fight club. Mm-hmm. I, I, I paid, I tried to look for them. They're right. in, they're mostly in the background, but they are there. Yeah. Oh, the one who, when he's like going around looking for people, there's the one guy who, who's like, uh, I heard Tyler gets facial reconstruction surgery every three years or whatever. And that, like, yeah. Yeah. That's one of them. But and I mean, then I some of the detect, the police commissioner's white. Um, and so are some of the, uh, so it's one of the detectives in that very funny scene where it turns out the cops are in project mayhem and he's like, if any of you move, you're going to get a lead salad. <laughs> also, Ed Norton running down the street, just like too thin, not sleeping, sweating, wearing dirty clothes, just his fang just banging in those boxer shorts. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Very funny. And it's really funny, like, once, like, like, like once we... Once we learn that it's, you know, that, that, that is just him. And then we see the security camera. It keeps cutting to the security camera footage as he's fighting Tyler in the parking lot. And it's just him, like, throwing himself around. <laughs> it's very funny. Even, like, the scene of him fighting himself in his boss's office is also a very good scene. It's really well shot, um, well scored, well acted. Uh mm-hmm. Just, but in it, he says, for some reason, I thought back to my first fight with Tyler. And the first time you watch the movie, you're like, okay. And then you're like, oh, bitch. <laughs> that is, a, yeah, like, like knowing the twist, that's a moment that it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Mm-hmm. Everyone can watch Fight Club. It's my favorite movie. Yeah, I guess let's uh, we can we can, you know, draw some conclusions here. So like I said, this was really my first time um, analyzing Fight Club and, you know, especially like going in with that knowledge about like about Chuck Palahniuk and about the inspirations behind it and and the fact that it was very much like written and directed as a comedy, just like having all that going in, I definitely feel like it's really good. And I feel like it has a reputation for being like, uh, like, like a very mainstream film today. And, you know, of course it, it's very well known, obviously, but I, you know, at the time it was relatively high budget, did okay at the box office. It was like a very like mid range film. And I think you kind of, you, you don't right. want to, you don't want to treat it like more than that, really. It's, uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's just, it's really, it's very funny, very well acted, uh, you know, obviously very dark, um, but I, I agree that it's that it's very well done. <laughs>
Yeah, absolutely. I think that, like, I think of all of Chuck Palahniuk's work, this is the one that it makes sense to make a movie out of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, if you haven't read the novel, I really think you, I think that you, Rocky, should read it. Um, yeah. If only because, like, you will read it and you will want to get married to Jules, like, <laughs> literally, because getting it from to that first draft stage, I could not have done that. I really could not have. Um, I think that, like, it is a masterclass in screenplay adaptation. It Absolutely. really fucking is. And I think that, like, of all of the, like, of all of the things about Fight Club that I would consider, like, no, this is, like, art with a capital a it's it's the work that went into adapting that screenplay absolutely like i think that is what the movie should be like critically commended for and like the novel is good i really like it but even chuck polonik is like yes i like the ending of the movie better yeah yeah that's what i was gonna say is that chuck polonik has has said that he likes the movie better than the book um i read an interesting thing about the ending that uh one of the buildings that gets blown up is the is the 20th century fox headquarters and uh <laughs> and uh bill McKinney, nice. who, was, who was the studio executive who greenlit the film got into a shouting match with rupert murdoch about like allowing the film to be made and ultimately it was one of the reasons he got fired <laughs> that's so funny that's really funny um, I'm trying to think of other things from the book that didn't make it into the film. Um, in the book, they make soap out of specifically Marla's mom's ass because she's Whoa. sending the liposuction stuff so that Marla can get lip fillers, but she doesn't have a fridge at her apartment, so she's keeping it at Tyler Durden's house. It's really convoluted. Uh-huh. And also, it turns out that they ate some of it and Marla finds out and gets really angry. Uh, but, like, I, it, I'm glad that part wasn't in the movie, not because it's not funny, but because, like, it's, it's, it was very convoluted. Um, like they, again, I mentioned the nude beach stuff. The nude beach scene was also not that great, like, compared to the rest of the scenes. Um, like, it's not a bad scene, and it works in the context of the novel, but it would not work in the movie. Yeah, I feel like it wouldn't have been that much harder, like, because they meet on a plane and it's like they could have met on a beach because he's already traveling places. But like, you know, it's hard to it's hard to it's always hard to put nudity in a movie. And it's, you know. Yeah, a movie that already has like gratuitous violence. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily need Brad and Ed going full frontal. It's true. It's true. Brad Brad does, but uh, we don't need them. Brad does. We do need that. Uh, yeah, we of course. I, although Ed Norton did date Salma Hayek, so although she does not have a very good track record in dating, so she dates a lot of uggos. I was talking earlier about how they had considered Courtney Love for the Marla role, and the reason that they nixed it is because Ed Norton and Courtney Love were dating at the time, and they felt that it would like make things weird. Yeah. That would be weird. I I think Courtney Love could have done a good job as Marla, mm-hmm. but I really think Helena Bonham Carter was the best choice. She I will also note this was really her first. This is really her first role playing like the weird quirky girl. I was just going to say Fight that. Club. She was mostly in like P 
period dramas. Yeah, she she was in uh, Wings of the Dove. That was the thing that Fincher saw and was like, we need her for Fight Club. But like, yeah, she was in Hamlet. She was in like all these, you know, Shakespeare movies or whatever. And then like, this is the role that made her Helena Bonham Carter, as we know her today. This is probably where Tim Burton found her. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think and she can fucking do it. Like, she has a range. This is also one of the first times Brad Pitt was playing somebody who wasn't, like, a good guy. Mm. Even as, if his characters were, like, assholes, they were still, like, you know, like, I'm a cop and the good guy in this movie. Uh, well, he was, he was, he played a, uh, he, he did a, he had a very, very interesting role where he played a serial killer in California. Uh, but this was really, this was an interesting point in Pitt's career because he had had, he had became, a, he became a big name off of like Seven, an interview with a vampire and, you know, obviously Solomon Louise early on, but like, but like he, he built up all that stuff. And then there was a couple of movies that he did in like 97, 98 that did pretty poorly domestically, but were pretty big hits internationally and uh, that like, like it's not clear why that is but i think it's just because like people like brad pitt and you know they'll see a movie for brad pitt around the world but uh meet joe black was obviously a, a big flop that did well internationally and fight club actually also you know made back like half its budget domestically and then like 90 million worldwide makes sense they should have paid brad a little less they should have paid <laughs> brad a little less i they think could've. they maybe could have uh Maybe sixteen million. <laughs> yeah, but but I I do think that Brad Pitt is probably a big part of the reason that you know the movie was able to be profitable, and of course it was a big hit on DVD. That's really that's really how it became a phenomenon. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the DVD, the bonus features on it are really good. Um, I do own a copy of the Fight Club DVD, even though I do not own literally a single device with a disc drive. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, the DVD has really good uh, commentary tracks. It has really good bonus features. Like, it's a good DVD. And it's yeah. packaged nicely, too. Nice. And, but it was really the, uh, you know, the word of mouth that started to spread about Fight Club. And then the, the fact that it came out on DVD and people were buying it, that was like what turned it into, you know, like, like, like a major movie that it really wasn't at the time that it came out. Right. Absolutely. And I think that, like, Part of the, I think one of the downsides of that is that one, when I was trying to write my Fight Club paper, I had a very, there were really only fucking weirdos writing about it on JSTOR. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and also, I think that, like, again, the, like, word, the version of Fight Club that is a, like, red flag movie is not a version of the movie that exists. Exactly. I really don't, I don't think it does. And I think that like, once you, I've had like friends, I streamed watching the movie um, in a Discord server I'm in. Um, and like a bunch of people were like, oh shit, I had no idea that like, this is what this movie was about. Yeah. And, and I think part of that is just like, it's a product of a lot of people knowing about Fight Club and not a lot of people having watched it for a long time because the marketing campaign that they did for it was like, this is a fighting movie with Brad Pitt. And it's, you know, it's, it's something for people, for wrestling fans to go see. And then, uh, you know, it started to develop this, this cult following that obviously got bigger and bigger, but only people who cared enough to go and see it had seen it for, 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 for quite some time. So right. I think that it developed this reputation because of its marketing that was completely separate from what the movie actually is. Oh, absolutely.
Absolutely. Which I think goes to show that no movie should ever advertise ever. Uh, <laughs> and we should all just get recommendations from our close friends. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh... Also, did you see Zola with your bubby? No, uh, I, we, I, that might happen today, I think, maybe, uh, we will see, I'm definitely seeing Zola this week, the last movie I saw, it's interesting, because the last time we talked, we were talking about people from College Humor, and the last movie I saw was Werewolves Within, which was directed by Josh Rubin. Oh, nice. Yeah, it, it's very funny. It's really I nice. actually, I want to see, uh, I want to see King of Staten Island, I don't, I don't, want to see it but i know lou wilson's in it and i fucking love lou wilson so hell yeah i'll i watched the 10 minute super cut of dunkirk on youtube for <laughs> harry styles i can sit through king of staten island for lou wilson yeah definitely so um thank you for coming and and having this great discussion absolutely i'm happy to do it uh i love sharing my hot takes i love media analysis uh yes. it's literally my job uh <laughs> so yeah i have a um personal essay that will be coming out on the rumpus pretty soon um mm. i don't have a pub date yet but when i do i'll tweet about it i guess um Validate Volume 1 is coming out early next year. Uh, play the demo on Steam or on itch.io. Uh, wishlist us on Steam. Uh, contribute to our TV Tropes page. Uh, we have one, and I think that's very cool. I think it's I very that. cool. Uh, it is shorter than our entry on a very angry Kiwi Farms forum thread so don't mm. add to that but <laughs> it's like a, it's like over a hundred pages it's really it's really pathetic that's funny um <laughs> and then at some point look out for the incredible podcast that i am hosting with uh rocky and i's mutual friend tolly uh it is called i hate criminal minds and it is an episode-by-episode episode breakdown of why Criminal Minds is the worst television show ever produced. So Excellent. Listen to that when, I, when we finally get around to posting it. Excellent. Love that. Love that. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.